Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department. Let's see more. Okay, so this is really weird. This is my first podcast, Leo Enright, on the Senior Times podcast platform. And I couldn't think of a greater person to do my first podcast with uh, but Katrina Jackman, my old friend from the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. Katrina, thank you so much, so, so much for being my first podcast guest ever. How does it feel? Well, well I, I feel pressure now to be really impressive, but yeah, it's great to be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the reason, the, the main reason that I wanted to talk to you first among all of the great scientists that I know, um, I guess really the reason I wanted to talk to you was that we go back a long way. I first met you when you were a young student at UL, isn't that right? Yeah, when I was doing applied physics degree in UL back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, and your trajectory has been just amazing. I mean, you, you come from Limerick, you, you've a fantastic family, you very sadly lost your father, who was a lovely man uh, there some years ago, but uh, your mother is still with us and she's hale and hearty. <laughs> she sure is, she sure uh, is. So just tell me, how does a, a, a woman from Limerick get involved in space science? Well, I always was interested in space, but mostly I was interested in physics and science and solving puzzles and understanding how the world works. And so I took a lot of science subjects in school. So for leaving certs, I did physics and chemistry and applied maths. But I also did French and music and geography. So I, I had broad interests, but it was really clear as time went on that physics was really the core of what I wanted to do. So then I did an applied physics degree in the University of Limerick. And one of the great aspects of that degree is that there was a co-op placement program which was a nine-month work placement and that was in the third year of the degree. So I contacted uh, Professor Andrew Coates who's a space science professor at the Mullard Space Science Laboratory. It's a, a slightly weird but beautiful old sort of stately home in the countryside in Surrey, so south of London in England. And I sent him probably an email a week for about three months and said, I will come and work for you. I will do, you know, whatever I am allowed to do um, and work on space missions. And in the end, he said, OK, you can come. <laughs> I know I know Andy well, and he's a wonderful, wonderful person. Can, can you talk to me about how, you know, how... Do, how did you become so involved so early? I mean, did you get uh, inspiration from your teachers uh, or, or did you find that there were people who were pushing you back? I mean, was this always a forward trajectory? It wasn't always. And certainly there were hurdles along the way. 
I, I did a general physics degree because I wanted to keep my options open. I, I knew I really liked space, but um, I wanted to just be sure that I would have a career trajectory because at the time I wasn't aware of that many space jobs in Ireland. Now, of course, now uh, we have an absolutely thriving space industry, both across academia and industry, loads of companies who provide hardware for space and who provide data analysis tools. And then, of course, scientists who are working more on what we call blue skies research. But yeah, absolutely, there were hurdles. The co-op placement was just an enormous springboard because I made loads of contacts and made loads of friends in the UK. And through that, I met my PhD supervisor because then I went on to the University of Leicester to do a PhD. And uh, I got really lucky in the sense of the timing of my PhD because I, I wanted to work on planets. I wanted to work on the solar system. And at the time that I was starting my PhD, an amazing spacecraft called Cassini, which was a NASA and European Space Agency and Italian Space Agency mission, Cassini had launched. It was just going, it had gone past Jupiter and it was on its way to Saturn. And it got to Saturn in the first year of my PhD. So I was among a very uh, small and very lucky group to work with that brilliant data session. I never looked back. Well, really, you know, it, it has been amazing to watch you progress, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that as, as we continue. Uh, but the whole point that you make about just how much is going on in Ireland, I mean, that's kind of the, the inspiration, if I may use such a grandiose uh, word, for this podcast, is to actually catch up with some of the, the young people, particularly like yourself, who are doing the most amazing stuff. Because I get the feeling, Katrina, that a lot of Irish people, you know, they think NASA every yeah. time they think about space. Mm -hmm. And I certainly know some of our senior politicians, all they ever talk to me, it drives me crazy. All they ever talk to me about is NASA. And, and yet we are, you know, we're Ireland doing things and we're doing things with Europe. Mm -hmm. Does it frustrate you? I think it's just really important to remember that Ireland is a member state of the European Space Agency. So we pay as a country to be a part of that amazing space agency. And Europe sends missions to space, sometimes in collaboration with NASA, sometimes in collaboration with the Japanese space agency or, or other countries, other national agencies. But Ireland is very much a central part in ESA. And um, ESA and NASA are, are just, just two of the, the agencies that allow us to get to space. I wanted to uh, talk a lot now about the sort of science that you do, because, you know, you, you deal in a very, very difficult area of science. You, you don't just take photographs of planets. Um, you, you're interested in their, their, the depths of these things and the, and the magnetic fields that they create and so on. So, I mean, I can imagine that you must have been drawn very early to Jupiter, which really I'd like to talk about mostly today because you are going to Jupiter. Yes. Uh, yes which is just, you know, amazing. A spacecraft with an Irish involvement on its way to Jupiter. It's, a, it's really just 
mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, for, to just to connect people, I thought we might talk a little bit about Jupiter and, and you know why you're interested in it. Sure. But if, if somebody in Ireland wanted to connect with the planet Jupiter today, I mean, what's the easiest way? You know, it seems like it, you know, what is it? It must be a long way away. It is a long way away. It's about five times further from the sun than the Earth is from the sun. So it is a long way away. But Jupiter is often described as the king of the solar system, or sometimes it's described as the planet of superlatives. So it's pretty much got the biggest of everything. It's the biggest planet in the solar system. It has the strongest magnetic field. It has the strongest auroras, like the northern and southern lights that we see on Earth. And that's linked to that strength of its magnetic field. And it also rotates really rapidly in less than 10 hours. And all of those factors combine to be a very interesting uh, space plasma environment. So I'm interested in plasma, which is charged particles and magnetic fields. And what's great about planets like Jupiter is that even though they're far away, they're accessible to us to study, both from the ground here on the Earth and from spacecraft which orbit the Earth and telescopes which orbit the Earth and look at Jupiter and from spacecraft which go all the way to Jupiter and orbit Jupiter. So we have a couple of different eyes on the system. So uh, as I was preparing for this, my first podcast, as I was preparing for it, uh, I was doing a bit of research and I discovered to my absolute amazement that not only can we walk out, as I did only the other day, walk out and see Jupiter hanging up mm. there in the sky. It's just you know beautiful to look at with the naked eye, for heaven's sake. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what blew me away is you can actually hear it. What, what's that all about? You can, yeah. I mean, it, just in terms of observing with the naked eye, that's a really good place to start. So anyone who's listening, you can just download any number of free Sky Mapper or Stellarium apps, which allow you just to point your phone up at the sky and figure out what's actually in my field of view. But Jupiter is super bright in the night sky, so absolutely you can see it with the naked eye. And then with a pair of binoculars or a, a modest telescope, you can get a better and better look with the eye. But as you say, you can also hear Jupiter, and that's linked again to this magnetic field, this really, really strong magnet that's at the core of the planet. And what we can hear is we can hear Jupiter's radio emissions which are radio wavelengths that we can detect with instrumentation on the ground. And I think we're going to hear a clip from that in a minute. Absolutely. I mean, I know some friends of mine at uh, University NUI Galway, they, they were pointing their radio telescope at Jupiter and listening to it with their students. And, and this is a, a recording that I got down from a NASA project called Radio Jove. Uh, people can do a web search and find Radio Jove. Uh, and if you're really interested, you can get download uh, details of how to get a receiver. But but let's just listen to what they describe as S-bursts, basically the sounds of Jupiter. This is amazing.
So, Katrina, what what this is just mind-boggling. What, what is this spooky noise we're hearing? It's linked to uh, plasma or charged particles deep within something called Jupiter's magnetosphere. So Jupiter has a magnetic field and you can think of that magnetic field like a gigantic shield which protects Jupiter from something called the solar wind. So the solar wind is a stream of more charged particles, more plasma that's flowing away from the sun and it's filling interplanetary space. But when it senses a planet like Jupiter with a strong magnetic field, all of a sudden this solar wind slows down because that magnetic field, that shield, is an obstacle to that flow. And so you can just picture uh, the planet Jupiter with these magnetic field lines going from the North Pole down to the South Pole, a bit like the wings of a butterfly, if you were to think of that kind of a, a picture. Or any of you who have ever taken iron filings um, and a magnet in school, the iron filings will trace out those magnetic field lines. So Jupiter has this magnetic field, which is acting like a shield to, to hold off this solar wind flow and forming this gigantic magnetosphere around the planet. And within that magnetosphere, you have all these interactions between magnetic fields and charged particles, and they create instabilities, which produce this radio emission, which we hear as these changing pitches and these changing tones, which sounds yeah, really, really odd, but it's just great to have that connection with what's going on deep in the planetary system. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro, make friends with innovation. I, I've had a great love for Jupiter for a long time because, again, one of the kind of... Uh, Again, that has inspirations for this podcast is the fact that I've been covering the space program for over 50 years. And so you weren't even born. Nope. <laughs> you, nope. you weren't even born when I was in mission control when the first uh, spaceships passed Jupiter. And um, so I, I have amazing memories, powerful memories of uh, scientists who went before you in the field of studying this magnetosphere, this giant magnetosphere. Um, there, there are I just think particularly the University of Iowa and the teams there who worked on uh, the Voyager missions. And as the Voyager, the first Voyager spacecraft swept through the Jupiter system, I was in mission control and its radio antenna uh, picked up the sound of it entering uh, Jupiter's uh, magnetic field. Let, let's listen to that amazing sound.
So, Katrina, I, I, as I said, have vivid memories because as a young reporter, radio reporter mostly, yeah. I was so glad that Fred Scarf and Don Garnett were able to give me these recordings because it made it, made it feel real for a young radio reporter. But what, what are we hearing, these weird sounds? So some of the sounds that we're hearing are the sounds of the edge of Jupiter's magnetic environment, something called the bow shock. And if you think about maybe a supersonic aircraft, when a supersonic aircraft is flying, you'll hear the sonic boom, which is linked to the fact that the aircraft is moving faster than the speed of sound in air. And so we talk about this solar wind, this flow, this sort of river of charged particles that's flowing away from the sun and shaping Jupiter's magnetosphere. But when that solar wind flow senses this obstacle of Jupiter in front of it, it effectively has the brakes put on it really rapidly. And so it has to slow from supersonic, so faster than the speed of sound, to subsonic, slower than the speed of sound. And at that barrier between those two regimes, you get that really sharp change in the properties of the waves. I wish I'd been alive when uh, when Voyager was there, but uh, not quite. Uh, one of the cutest things uh, that uh, uh, Don Garnett and, and uh, Fred Scarf produced for us, I remember one day they came in and they let us listen to the lightning mm. in the atmosphere of Jupiter. Let, yeah. Let's listen to that. So I just love this. I mean, it's mind-boggling. It, yeah. How does how do they do that? I think, you know, Irish people are fascinated by the weather, right? So it's amazing to think that we can actually study weather on another planet. And though that lightning is so powerful that it can be observed from from or sensed from huge distances away from Jupiter. So it just gives you a sense of the enormity of the planet. And it gives you a sense of how it's just changing with time and how it's really variable. And um, for anyone who's interested in weather, I would really encourage you to, you know, compare and contrast lightning on the Earth with lightning in these other really exotic environments. But one thing which I will pick up on when, you know, you mentioned being around in the Voyager days and learning from those um, experienced scientists then and... Through my career as a planetary scientist, I have benefited so much from the experience and the knowledge and the dedication of all the people who have gone before. Because when you want to send a spacecraft to the outer planets, they're really far away. So it takes a really long time to get there. So post-launch, the quickest you're going to get to Jupiter is about five years. And the average is sort of seven to eight years just of flying through interplanetary space to get there. And before you can launch a spacecraft, it might take a decade to plan and build all the instruments and to integrate them onto the rocket and all of that stuff. And then you have, you know, the mission phase itself. So it's a generation's activity to send a spacecraft to the outer planets. And it never ceases to amaze me the dedication that some of these senior scientists have. People who, you know, put politely, might not be there to benefit from the data that that spacecraft is taking but who still say i'm going to dedicate you know the senior part of my career to building instrumentation for the next spacecraft 
which is then going to be analysed by the next generation coming behind them. So there's a real passing over of knowledge and experience and, and that, that really significantly long timescale for a project. And that's great. And you've brought us really perfectly now to what basically where, where you're at, as it were. We've jumped now forward and you're looking forward at the end of this decade uh, to going into orbit around Jupiter and even to go into orbit around uh, its moons, yeah. one of the, yeah, one of the most dramatic moons. Yeah. Tell, tell, tell us about the JUICE mission. Yes, JUICE, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. I think the conversations around that acronym were uh, probably quite protracted. But yes, so ESA, the European Space Agency, and JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, are launching this spacecraft, this amazing spacecraft with a suite of 10 instruments, and they're launching it to Jupiter. Uh, and the expectation is that it will reach Jupiter in 2031, and it will spend up to five years sampling the Jupiter system. But crucially, it's actually going to go into orbit around one of Jupiter's moons called Ganymede. So again, when we go back to thinking about observing Jupiter from the ground, you know, in our back garden, if you have a modest telescope, you can actually see the moon Ganymede and a couple of Jupiter's other what we call Galilean moons from the ground in your back garden. So we call them the Galilean moons because they were discovered by the astronomer Galileo. And so there are four of these moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto. And they're all fascinating for many and varied reasons. But the moons are really one of the key targets of the JUICE mission because, and I should be very careful and delicate when I say this, <laughs> uh, you don't want to get loads of letters um, into the show, but the moons, uh, not Io, but uh, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto, potentially have conditions which can support habitability. Doesn't necessarily mean there is life there today, doesn't necessarily mean there was life there in the past or there will be in the future, but they are the best candidates in our solar system beyond Earth to have a chance of supporting life. So we have to go there. So there could be life potentially. I know you're a scientist. You have to be very careful about these things. I'm a journalist. I don't have to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, you're saying there could be life in the salt water ocean underneath the surface of Ganymede. There could be. So there are lots of things that we... Some things that we suspect and, and several things that we don't yet know. So when previous spacecraft like Voyager and the Galileo spacecraft, which actually orbited Jupiter in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, when they flew near moons like Ganymede, they detected very strange wobbles in the magnetic field signature near those moons. And those wobbles are potentially consistent with a global ocean under the surface. Well, let's have a listen. Uh, this this is what uh, Ganymede sounded like as Jupiter, uh, sorry, as Voyager was passing through the Ganymede system a, a long time ago. But th this is now the moon that you want to listen to, or at least measure the effects of the uh, magnetic field on it. Uh, let's have a listen to Ganymede specifically from Voyager. Okay, so what, what is this now, this Ganymede? So Ganymede is, is a 
fascinating moon, we think that it has, or we know it has its own magnetic field. No, sorry, I'll, I'll ask that question again, actually. Yeah. So if you could tell me, what, but I just want to talk about the recording first, just to, okay, well, to work, so... work it into it. Okay, so the no, recording no problem here. is... Is this the recording from Juno Waves? I think, no, I think this should be the last, uh, it's after the lightning, I think it's on the... Oh, the get from Galileo? Yeah, I think it's... Uh, Sorry. Okay, so this from this it? page? Yeah, I think at the bottom, isn't it? Yeah, is that not the... Passing through, okay, lightning, okay, no. Oh, no, it must be, then it must be... Oh. The P PWS Ganymede audio. Oh, yeah, that must be it, yeah, sorry. Okay, um, okay, yeah, recorded the signature of a magnetosphere at Ganymede. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So I just wanted to sort of, again, I just wanted to drop in a little bit of yeah. noise, basically. Sure. So, Katrina, what 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 are we hearing? We're hearing the moon Ganymede. We're hearing the effect of Ganymede's magnetic field on the radio signal. So Ganymede is really special as a moon because it has its own magnetic field. And it orbits, the moon orbits within Jupiter's magnetosphere. So you've got a magnetic field within a magnetic field. And the Galileo spacecraft, which was orbiting in the Jupiter system and passing, flying by uh, Ganymede back in the 90s, took measurements with an instrument called PWS, which is the Plasma Wave Experiment. And that recorded these radio signatures, which are consistent with a mini magnetosphere around the moon Ganymede. And am I right in thinking that when you get to Jupiter, you're you're hoping that similar measurements that you will make will will give you further information about a possible ocean? Is that true? Absolutely. So we're we're honing in on it from a couple of different perspectives. At the moment, NASA have a spacecraft at Jupiter called Juno, and that mission has been extended till 2025. And the orbits of that mission have actually been shortened to allow that, that Juno spacecraft to go closer to some of these moons, including Ganymede. So there are a couple of flybys that will give us insight into the radio emissions associated with moons like Ganymede. But JUICE is absolutely targeting these moons. That's the main goal of JUICE, is to study the Jupiter system and to search for conditions associated with habitability of these moons. And habitability... In order to understand habitability, you need to understand things like the magnetic environment. You need to look for energy sources. You need to search for these global oceans under the surface. And, you know, when you think about how far Jupiter is from the sun, you know, life on Earth thrives because the sun is an energy source for us. But that's not the only place on Earth, actually. The surface of Earth is not the only place where life can thrive. Because if you think about the deep, dark oceans on Earth, you can have life forms that, that can exist and can thrive near hydrothermal vents in these deep, dark oceans. So that's sort of what we're thinking about near Ganymede, is an ocean that's under an icy crust that's really, really dark, but that is kept liquid by some energy source. And then there potentially being those conditions for habitability in those subsurface oceans. 
I know that somebody is going to write into the Senior Times podcast platform and ask, are, are you talking about whales here? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm talking about very, very primitive and, and basic life forms. So not aliens with big green heads, not oh, fish, anything like that. Oh, so so you're, it's basically snot. Well, yeah, put put. Slightly more polite. Sorry, you're a that. scientist. I, sorry, I'm a journalist. That's how a, that's how I would put it. If yeah, yeah. It's slimy stuff, uh, and yeah. presumably the, the heat is coming from the interior. And they, if they're going to, if there are going to be organisms there, they they'll be living off the heat, but also the minerals that are in the water. And absolutely, and so it's really crucial for us to understand what that ocean is made of and so for the case of some of these moons of Jupiter we think that some of them have cracks in the ice which allow plumes or geysers to escape so anyone who's ever been to you know Yellowstone or anyone who's ever been to Iceland will have seen these amazing geysers I saw one in Iceland when I was there for a conference and it was it was quite smelly but it was really cool to see it um so that's our expectation is that there may be plume material escaping from some of these moons and if so we're going to fly through that plume and we're going to sniff it and we're going to figure out what is it made of what is the composition and crucially what is the salinity or the saltiness of that ocean because that's really important in terms of constraining whether life can survive I mean, it is just so astonishing that you can use, I mean, obviously there'll be photographs taken, we'll see some great pictures, presumably, but it's just amazing how much you, uh, as a scientist who doesn't take photographs, as somebody who relies on radio waves, mm-hmm. I mean, it's I mean, it's just fantastic. And of course, you're bringing students with you. Uh, in fact, some of the work, a lot of the work is being done by research students at the Institute for Advanced Studies, isn't that right? Absolutely. So I lead the planetary group there. And then uh, within that group, we have an ESA research fellow, Dr. Mika Holmberg. She's actually a formal co-investigator on the JUICE mission. And then another um, senior postdoctoral researcher, Dr. Quarantan Louis, and myself are associate scientists on what's called the RPWI, the Radio and Plasma Wave Instrument on JUICE. So actually just this morning, uh, we had a team meeting where we were talking about, you know, plans for the mission and how all the deployment of the booms is going to work and the first data that we're going to get after um, JUICE has successfully, fingers crossed, launched. So it's really exciting to be in at the beginning of a mission. Is it possible that there could be a secondary school student listening to us and she could be working on this mission? I mean, it sounds like it's going to go on for a very long time and there will be opportunities for not just for uh, scientists and researchers who are active today, but even young people in school in Ireland today who could go on to become part of it. Absolutely, because as I mentioned earlier, the time scale for planetary science missions is long because it takes a long time to get out to the outer solar system. And then once we get to Jupiter, we're going to be there for a couple of years. So certainly the expectation is that people who are in school now trying to decide, will I do physics for leaving cert? Will I do chemistry? They're the kind of people who will be analysing this data. They might be the kind of people who 
will make the the certain discovery of this global ocean at Ganymede. They'll be the people who will measure the saltiness of that ocean. So those opportunities are are very real, and those opportunities exist both in Ireland and internationally. I just wanted to finish on uh, the most recent radio uh, signals, as it were, from Ganymede were taken by the Juno mission, of course, uh, and uh, that mission sent back these uh, signals. Uh, So uh, this is really very close to the sort of thing, presumably, that you will be doing. Let's have a listen to it. So, Katrina, it just again, I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around the idea that these noises can mm. tell us so much. But, but you must be so excited about the prospect that uh, in just a few short years, you'll be receiving the similar signals to this. And there's the potential for a discovery that would, one imagines, win somebody a Nobel Prize. Well, you feel like it's a game-changing discovery if we find for sure that there are conditions that can support life somewhere other than Earth. And I, if I was to, you know, place a bet right now, I think we will find conditions, whether they're at Ganymede or whether they're at an extrasolar planet. I think it's a little bit arrogant of us to think that we're the only type of life that exists in the universe. Do you think any of your former classmates in school will regret having thought that science was boring? (laughs) I think everybody has to find their passion in life. So I'm just really lucky that I found mine and that I found a pathway to do a job that I truly love and that inspires me every day. And I'm lucky to work with really smart, motivated, creative people who want to come up with new ideas and who want to take risks. And it's really important to remember, you know, space is hard and there are lots of risks involved in launching and building and sending spacecraft, particularly to the outer solar system. You know, Jupiter has this really strong magnetic field. So it has regions near the planet called the radiation belts, which effectively fry spacecraft electronics. So Jupiter doesn't really want to be explored (laughs) close up and it's tough to get there, but taking big risks allows us to make big breakthroughs. Katrina, it's been a a joy as always to talk to you. Um, I'm just so excited about this mission. Um, It's just, of course, one of many that Irish scientists, uh, many women, 
young women, many young men are involved in. Uh, and I'm looking forward, uh, thanks to you for doing the inaugural podcast, but I'm looking forward to hearing from a lot of these modern Irish explorers, the, the St. Brendans <laughs> of, uh, of the modern age who are voyaging out, not just out to the, into the sea, but out into the solar system and indeed the universe. So uh, I look forward to uh, everybody listening to us today, joining us again on Senior Times podcast platform. Uh, I'm Leo Enright. Phone poke and new wet, on will knappy no fum nis orjo wet, nis eskalehusaj, faker no phone in tokata gwin, on show, egg daro, on von klishte is dany, gidi gohon la hai glina, august taskina, tarod egen gogachtina, tanismo olis egg daro.com.